0: Very good morning. Welcome to this Tuesday edition of Squawk Stocks put in a strong rebound. The S&P rallies to its best day since June as Treasury yields continue to ease, soothing fears over rising interest rates. Apple outpaces the Nasdaq, trading up 5% after the tech titan earns Warren Buffett's endorsement and announces that all of its 270 U.S. stores are now open for business
1: is on the hunt for a new CEO as the world's largest yogurt maker buckles under activist pressure and splits the top roles, with Emmanuel Faber staying on as chairman. The shares in Zoom rally in extended trade after the video calling group reports near 370% spike in fourth quarter revenues, with the lockdown stock seeing no signs of slowdown.
2: And crew prices extend their losses on concerns that OPEC Plus producers may agree to hike supply as soon as this week.
1: market nerves calming in session yesterday Uh, the best day for the s&p 500 in about nine months you can see the extent of the spike 90 points or 2.4 percent for the dow and the nasdaq the best trading day we've witnessed since November last year. So very strong numbers uh, pulling onto these boards. and You can see the outsized performance again from the technology sector, a 3% bounce. So a lot of those fears we witnessed last week amid concerns about the spike in bond yields roiling uh, the technology sector, some of the the more stretched evaluations in the market. Those calm, uh, much calmer perspective now as we saw those bond yields starting to Back off some of the high ranges at the start of this week. Don't forget 1.61%, the high watermark we saw last week. And one4 odd, roughly, the level we saw in trade yesterday. One of the big moving stocks, too, for the major indices was Apple. And this was a fascinating one because don't forget there'd been a very nervous trade in this stock for a number of sessions after we saw that 13F filing. The Berkshire Hathaway had reduced its holdings in the Cupertino giant by 6% in the quarter. But then we had comments over the weekend from Berkshire Hathaway and Warren Buffett uh, saying in an annual letter to its uh, shareholders published over the weekend that the investment firm still owns 5.4% of Apple, also uh, making it the third most valuable asset in the portfolio. The letter praising Apple's approach to dividends and share buybacks. So the ticker approval from Berkshire Hathaway uh, just making a real difference to the way the stock traded yesterday. The company adding to its own fortunes by also confirming that 270 of the U.S. retail stores are open for business, although some of them are still just appointment only. So that news flow, very positive, as you can see, for the stock. That made a difference, too, for the broader markets, given that the size of uh, this particular company and the U.S. technology names more broadly, you can see the extent of the bounce. Not as much as Apple, really. The, the one to two odd percent range. Uh, Netflix, two point one percent. You can see uh, two point one roughly on Alphabet, Amazon, one point seven percent. A very decent bounce, though, again in Tesla stock. And yes, uh, as we saw uh, yesterday, the market uh, had a little bit more optimism, a bit of a spring back in its step. And in contrast to some of that confidence that had been rocked the other week uh, that had also destroyed the Tesla trade and Bitcoin. So back in the green is what we witnessed for that stock. I want to take you to the Russell uh, 2000. uh, These small cap stocks, again, see a lot of pressure when you've got more volatility in the markets. And that was the story last week. But in session yesterday, we had that bounce of 3.3%. Best daily performance since early January and uh, the Russell 2K now just less than 2% off its record high. A quick look at those Treasuries and I mentioned that 1.4% level we're witnessing on that US 10-year yield. You can see 1.41% this morning. So uh, just looking a little bit calm in the morning session too. Jeff.
0: Terrific, Karen. Thanks so much. Let's um, uh, pick up a a little bit of sound that we've got for you this morning. Speaking to CNBC, Dan Simcovitz, this is Morgan Stanley's head of investment management, said investors have to focus on different parts of the market if they want to get decent yield. Let's hear what he had to say.
3: The question of how does fixed income uh, uh Fit into a portfolio, a long-term portfolio. It's one of the biggest questions we're working with clients. And and actually, the Eaton Vance transaction, where it has value add, higher yield, fixed income, is an important element. Uh, the Barclays AG index, even with the move in yields in the last two weeks, still only yields one percent. One percent is really challenging for savers. Pension funds, insurance companies. So, in that context, you got to go into more value-add fixed income. And so, whether it's high yield or loans, uh, emerging market debt, or using municipals on an after-tax basis, or in the case of Morgan Stanley Investment Management, our private credit funds. That's you can't just follow the AG index today. Uh, you've got to look at other parts of the fixed income market to build the right portfolio, given how low the overall yield situation is still after the move.
0: So, Mr. Simcovitz, raising some of the challenges there for yield investors. But right now, markets just look a a little bit rocky if you are risk-on. Cole Smead joins us, President and Portfolio Manager at Smead Capital Management. Cole, we got a reverse day yesterday after last week's pain caused by this spike in Treasury yields. Do you think we're done as far as this yield hike is concerned? How do you see the near-term future?
4: Well, we're learning quickly that the market has a lot more control of the ten-year than most investors thought. They've, they've been treating the Fed as though they're some omnipotent ship captain on the open seas, and the reality is, on the short end of the curve, you know, they control short-term monetary policy. Uh, but the long end of the curve, the market controls a lot more. And um, you know, most of the reason for people owning stocks right now is that it looks historically terrible, but bonds look so much more terrible that stocks look pretty dang good. And I find both of the arguments really tough to swallow.
0: What's a sense of where you think our audience should be positioned at the moment, given the choppiness and the volatility that we're now seeing around both bond and equity market positions?
4: That's a great question. Uh, To your point about the bond market, uh, this is going to be a fits and starts game. I mean, we spent 40 years finding an all-time low, and it's going to be a fits and starts game Um, You know, uh, Bill Gross, I think in the last week had kind of commented on uh, the nature of that. So um, do I expect bond investors to lose money? Yes. Back to what Karen was saying about the Berkshire letter, Buffett intimated that in his letter. He didn't go as far as telling people how bad it could be, but he said they're terrible investments in effect. On the stock market side, the real question I think for investors is as the economies of the world or using the United States economy, as it makes a comeback due to the success of the vaccination and the strengthening of the the economies, does a business benefit from the factors that win in that scenario versus how that affects the price of money and thus the attractiveness of stocks? And that dichotomy of the economy winning and the stock market losing, I, I don't think investors have their minds wrapped around that at all.
2: Yeah, good morning to you, Carl. Very nice to hear from you. Look, we're only back to levels on the U.S. Treasury, and I'm looking at my chart on the screen now, that where we were just over a year ago, the start of 2020, that doesn't sound a very high yield to any of us who have been around a significant period. In fact, if you go back uh, to the middle of uh, July 2018, for instance, you get over 3%. If we're having this kind of wobble on markets when we get to one and a half, what are we going to be like if actually we do get some real momentum in the underlying economy, which I sorely hope we do?
4: Yeah, it's a great question. I'll, I'll give you one more thing to add to that, Steve. I'm 37, and most people in my, at my age have never seen a nasty bear market in their life. Um, they, they hardly could catch their breath in the spring, but have never seen really terrible equity markets and have never seen bonds lose money, to your point. And so I I think most investors are just not prepared for this because um, you know dogs chase cars and people chase stocks. It's just the the nature of the beast, and therefore they're they're not very prepared for this. And you know what I tell people often right now is market risk looks terrible, but investment risk looks wonderful. In other words, you know we're we're buying malls, for example, here in the United States in Simon and Maybridge, and we're buying them for less than the cost of replacing the assets. Well, that's just a very different conversation than saying well. What are the S and P earnings going to be next year? And only God knows what someone's going to pay on a valuation basis for those earnings. Um, you know, the, I think the, the detachment of the S and P 500 to the tangible or intangible assets today, there's no relationship between those assets and the price of stocks as it pertains to the market. And I think that's real the, where the damage of stocks will come. If people wake up to that, uh, you could see quite a bit of hell and pain being handed out over the next two to three years.
2: But, but, Cole, I, I will never be a central banker. I don't have the skill set at all. I don't have the brain power as well to be a Jay Power or a Janet yeah. Yellen. But but looking at the absolute terror in the statements from the likes of the RBA, I even went on to the RBA website just to check that their target for inflation is 2 to 3%. Unless it's, and The absolute terror when yields have picked up to still significantly under 2% for their 10-year paper as well. Are they giving us the wrong yeah. message? Shouldn't they be a bit more like, yeah, we're OK. We're comfortable with rising yields because it will get us somewhere towards our target if the underlying economy is As well. There just seems to be palpable terror in their
4: eyes. Uh, Well, to your point, the reasons I think are wonderful, which is the market saying, wait, what if things are not as bad as people think they were going to be for as long as they thought they were going to be? For example, you know, I'm 37. I'll have a shot in my arm by the end of April here in the United States of America. And that's not a stretch, just to give you a sense. uh, 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 You know, uh, a state like Connecticut has announced that people 35 and up. We'll have a shot uh, by the end of the first week of May. So I just don't think the market's pricing and how quickly the recovery is. And, and secondly, we have never thrown this much stimulus on a problem of this size. Does this seem like a big problem? Yes. Is this on World War II proportions? No. And we're throwing stimulus at it like it is. And I just don't think people understand that. So that's why, A, the recovery is going to be swifter, but the unintended consequences will be as well. And I think that's what the bond market is really figuring out is, wait, we're going to be at normal a lot quicker. Uh, What normal is, I think, is different. For example, as Zoom is taking victory laps the last couple of days, this is the dead flat top in misery trades. It is versus what can you do if you had the ability to go out and see people and enjoy yourself? And That's where the economy wins, and, and that's where the bond market and the stock market really loses.
1: Nicole, can I just dig a little deeper into that? Because the the Zoom numbers uh, were surprising, again, showing us how strong the growth rate has been in uh, these uh, video calls. We've seen in other quarters of the market, too, here in Europe yesterday, Logitech, the accessory maker for for computers, uh, really at the forefront of some of those stay-at-home trends. I know a lot of investors have been cautious about this last gasp trade around the the COVID winners. But what do you do with the the handful of stocks that have been particularly outperforming the market? Are you saying you should sell down those uh, particular stocks
4: now? Uh, they, they look like a nightmare waiting to happen. And let me just give you a different example, but a, a beneficiary of this. Okay? Costco is one of the great American businesses out there Okay, um, in a nifty 50 kind of sense. I, I think it's just a wonderful company. And yet at the same time, it made peak earnings last year in the history of the business because when toilet paper ran out, where did people go running? Well, they tried to buy it in bulk and that's what Costco does really well. But Costco makes all their money on memberships, not on selling you products. So to watch someone pay 35 or 36 times earnings for even a wonderful company like that, it's just like people paying what they paid 20 years ago for Coca-Cola. And if you run back the performance uh, to today from 20 years ago, Coca-Cola has got crushed. On a nominal basis, it's made less than 5%. It's lost to the S&P 500. And it doesn't matter how good Costco is. It's in that predicament. Um, like Coke was 20 years ago. Um, Great American businesses can often get overpriced. So I think if you're like a Zoom, you're newer to the game, the question is, are you gonna end up looking like a Cisco where yes, you're very important to um, business in 20 years, but you just never got that kind of valuation ever again? Or are you more something like the discos of that era where effectively you're gonna be disintermediated away at some point, and uh, you were a great story at one point. And that's the question for those kind of businesses. It, it, the, the ability to compound money is completely missing going forward here.
1: Cole, I, I know you've written a, a few comments about the the housing market as well. We've seen a complete change in mindset for a lot of people trapped at home, yeah. wanting a bigger space, uh, you know, a sea change, a uh, move out to, to bigger uh, portfolios than what they've got in, in cities. But what happens next? We've got a little bit of pent up savings. We've got mortgage rates potentially rising though, at the other end. What do you see coming for, for the mortgage market in the states?
4: Yeah, no. It, so the, the the most interesting dichotomy right now in the stock markets is watching the 10-year move and watching people trade the housing stocks off the 10-year because the central premise of investors right now is it is if the 10-year yield rises no one's going to want a house okay now once again i i'm in that kind of cohort i'm I'm less than 40 years old i I see a lot of those people around me and i I know I know what that's like and the idea that men and women that are cohabitating or are married are sitting there Trying to figure out whether they're going to have a child based on where the 10-year yield is seems utterly ridiculous, okay? And that's very important because babies build houses. Um, A baby causes a couple to want a house. And watching people treat the affordability argument as though it's the only argument, if that was true, we would have had a 10-year boom in U.S. housing because then this has been the most affordable looking back 50 years, relatively speaking. And yet we built and bought bought and sold almost no homes 10 years ago, which was the other major low in the history of the 10-year treasury. So my age group, we're not very smart. We're just like every other human that's walked the face of the earth. And um, watching Wall Street treat millennials as though they're so ideologically sound is just really stupid. So here's the big idea. The sheer demographics of housing are wonderful. The supply is impossible. There is not a baby boomer out there that wants to sell their house because they will not go into assisted living homes post-COVID, which means there's inventory that will never go out to the market again. And because of that, the only way out is to build the homes. And the utility will drive housing, not the affordability.
2: Coach me thank you very much indeed. And just in case any of our viewers weren't aware, you are 37 years of age. You've only told us three times in this hit. So thank you I know. very much indeed. I'm trying to rub thanks. it in, Steve. Thanks. <laughs> I reckon you've taken a bet somewhere. Uh, Cole Smead, President and Portfolio (laughs) Manager of Smead Capital Management. It's been done before, trust me. Okay, thank you very much indeed for that, Cole. Right, let's move on. Congressional Democrats have proposed an annual tax of 3% on ultra high. earners worth more than $1 billion as part of a bid to close a widening wealth gap in the United States. Uh, Opponents say the proposal threatens to slow economic growth and would be difficult to enforce. Later today, stateside, our colleagues will be speaking to uh, Senator Elizabeth Warren. Yes, she finally got her Ultra Millionaires Tax Act together. Whether it happens or not uh, remains to be seen. But that will be a great interview at 1400CT. Watching the CNBC anchors talk about that one with Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Meanwhile, President Biden's $1.9 trillion stimulus bill will be debated by U.S. senators this week after Democrats dropped their bid to include a $15 minimum wage as part of the proposals. The Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer confirmed that the debate would start over the next few days after Republicans and some Democrats hit out at the measure saying the level is too high. So, coming up on the show, Danone agrees to split the roles of CEO and chairman amid pressure from investors. I'm sure Charlotte will be up uh, very soon to talk about this one. Welcome back to Scorebox. I just want to, before I get to the next story, just say I think it's a huge story and I think a lot of you out there are going to be making the same kind of questions a lot of investors over at Dunona are making at the moment. What kind of company do you want going forward? Do you want a company that has a stakeholder mantra where profits are less important or do you want profits to be at the center uh, of shareholder capitalism going forward as opposed to stakeholders? Because it's the crossfire that Danone has found themselves in. They've now agreed to separate the roles of the chairman and CEO as the company remains under pressure from activist investors to change its management strategy. Emmanuel Faber, who uh, has held both positions for the last three years uh, and who has been a champion of changing uh, the remit of companies going forward. Uh, He's now gonna step down as CEO uh, as soon as a successor is found. Karen.
1: Uh, Steve, let's take a look at Zoom shares, surging of 8% in extended trade after the video calling software maker easily beat top and bottom line forecasts in the fourth quarter. The US group also forecast a revenue growth of 42% for the year ahead, despite expectations that virus restrictions will ease amid the vaccine rollout. We'll have more on the results later today when we hear from the Zoom CFO, Kelly Steckelberg. That interview is coming up at 13.40 CET and a first on CNBC. And we'll have more on another company seeing a pandemic boost later in this show. when We speak to the team viewer CEO Oliver Stahl. That exclusive interview is coming up at 9.30 CET.
0: South Korean e-commerce giant Coupang is planning what could be Wall Street's biggest IPO by an overseas company since Alibaba. The group, which is backed by SoftBank, is targeting a price range of $27 to $30 a share, valuing the business at $50 billion. The IPO could be another win for SoftBank's Vision Fund, which recently swung from big losses to a record profit. Other Coupang investors include BlackRock, uh, Sequoia Sequoia Capital and Bill Ackman are also set to reap rewards. Another uh, SoftBank-backed company, Greensill Capital, could reportedly be on the brink of insolvency after Credit Suisse withheld much of its funding. According to the Wall Street Journal, Credit Suisse has suspended $10 billion of funds that buy green seal products, citing, quote, uncertainties in their valuation. Meanwhile, Bloomberg reported that SoftBank's vision fund has written down its $1.5 billion investment in Greensill and may drop the valuation to near zero. Greensill is also a major lender to Sanjeev Gupta's Metals Empire. So this is an interesting business that is ultimately in uh, supply chain financing and we know that this is uh, another niche area of financing like um, litigation funding but this ultimately is a way for you as a business to try and free up cash flow if you've got money locked up in invoices effectively they come in and they supply you with the equivalent amount of funding and there's a little margin for them here. What's fascinating, the, the bit that resonates I think for all of us around the desk, I'm sure, is the one about the valuation problem. And if Credit Suisse is now at a point where it's looking at the portfolio and asking itself whether these are appropriately valued to market, then there is a serious issue, I think, in this particular segment and something that everybody needs to just have a closer look at here because it is key, obviously, to efficient working of these markets and to everybody's confidence in the debt side of the markets that valuations be fair and they be priced to market. And that everybody understands that. And if there is an issue with a mismatch on valuations, then I think this sends an important signal to the rest of the market, not just those that are involved in this particular subsector.
1: Early on, when uh, central banks and governments were talking about rescuing hard-hit companies, we were giving the impression that uh, nobody would be allowed to fail. I think for for many of us, it just didn't ring true that there would be casualties in this crisis. I think this is a company that has gone down the risky end of lending and what you've seen a number of uh, corporate defaults as a result, companies that cannot pay back those debts because of what they've uh, experienced during this crisis. So you're naturally seeing that, that flow in effect. One of the other big parts that jumps out to me is just how many sort of tentacles there are in this business. Mm. SoftBank being involved and, mm. you know, there was an FT report that effectively SoftBank had poured about $500 million to these funds and then encouraged them to, to lend out to some of the struggling Japanese technology companies that SoftBank had bet big on. That was one of the FT investigations. So that, that was that layer of uh, influence that went on by the, the SoftBank vehicle and which we know has uh, been, really seen a negative light over some of its dealings in recent years. Mm. The other story, I think, was around Gupta. I mean, he's seen as a high flyer, a rescuer in some areas of the steel market, but also along the riskier side, given the lack of transparency over some of his dealings. And that was also uh, raised in a series of different articles. So I don't think anyone really came out of the, this story looking uh, particularly rosy from, from Gupta to, to SoftBank, stick.
2: Uh, I, I think someone has come out looking, rosy, uh, and it's the Financial Times. Uh, and I know at least one of the journalists on the team there, Arash Mazudi, uh, and they've done a lot of work on this as well. Uh, and look, I think we have to be very careful with comparisons for other opaque business models where certain parts of the accounts are questionable. Uh, but it's very interesting, the FT last year flagging that um, the fund account showed it had lent uh, seventy-four million to a company that did not exist. Now, Greenshill blamed the mistake on a computer error attributing the investment to one of Gupta's companies as well. So um, I just want to go right back to what Jeff started with. This is essentially a supply chain financing business. So actually, the model is actually a very traditional model. Dare I say, our previous owners used to engage in a lot of supply side financing or vendor financing, so to speak, as well, uh, a model there as well. So it's actually quite a tried and tested historic model. You want to buy something, but you haven't got the funds? Well, you you can borrow that off the vendor as well. So very interesting that it's become so opaque Take over at this company as well so i think there are big question marks and and dare i say it, good journalists like arash mazoudi and others at the ft they are doing a lot of good legwork on these companies uh, and again if i pause and talk about other companies uh, completely separately where dare i say it, the journalists have come under fire for exposing the finances of certain in, uh, individual companies uh, you don't have to go too far to look to certain former dax companies do you